Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Hi, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you today? Good. December already. How can it be another year gone? It's hard to imagine where we were, you know, the beginning of this year. It's been such a big year of change, hasn't it? In some ways, it's flown by and December's always a really busy month with one thing and another. Although it is nice in the office that we do take a proper break and yeah. close things down for two weeks and everybody gets some decent time off. It's a good time to remind everyone to check our newsletter if your groups are running towards the end of the month because some groups take a break. Depending on where your session falls in the month, you might find that you have got an early session at the beginning of January rather than one in December or the other way around. So definitely check the newsletters before you turn up to your regular groups. And regardless of whether or not our office is open, the newsletters will still be coming out on their usual Monday morning. And what have you got planned for this month? Well, my middle one has his school dance this year, which is a big deal in fifth year and we live close to school so I will no doubt be hosting teenagers in their finery pre-dance which will mean that I will want the Christmas decorations up ahead of the dance. He won't give two hoots whether the Christmas decorations are up by the time his friends come round but I will. We've got the same. We've got a Kaylee this year as well, because I've got one in fifth year as well. And all the fun things that come with this time of year, not all entirely related to Christmas, but certainly the end of the year and kind of winding down. And I know we've both got exams in our house in January, so we'll have studiers. Time for some revelry and time for some fun. And my children have actually asked, in addition to the usual things that we do this time of year, because of course I have a birthday really close to Christmas, so I don't allow too many decorations until my birthday is well and truly done and dusted but they've asked for some of the things we did last year when we had a lovely um, woman staying with us from Chile and she made us pisco sours for Christmas day beware if you're listening one pisco sour goes down beautifully as like a dream the second also goes down beautifully like a dream but you don't really remember what happens after that so but they've asked if we could in her honor make pisco sours on Christmas and I was thinking about how I love the way that different things that happen over the years kind of get added or bolted onto your family as usual things. So for today's wonderful new piece of work, we've got a story called Sunday Surprise by Sarah Tinsley. And then we've got a paired poem by the terrific poet Teresa Munoz from her book, Saddle, called 22. Should we break right in into the story? Yeah. Okay. Sunday Surprise. Every Sunday, we gathered in the living room. The dog lay on the floor, chewing her slipper catching our anticipation in the twitch of her tail. Mum stood in the doorway, calling out to us as we moved around the living room. Warmer, she said, as we walked past the dining table into the middle of the room. Colder, as we went towards the fireplace, the one my sister had fallen in when she was two and had been snatched up by motherly hands, the swathe of Terry toweling on her bottom, saving her from harm. It was the only heating in the house. Sometimes we woke up from hot water bottle slumber to find ice on the inside of the windows. Warmer as we walked past the dog bed, getting hotter as we turned back to the sofa, boiling as we stood next to the beige cushions. The dog's tail was thumping on the floor as we looked from the sofa to our mother. Were we allowed to dismantle it? She smiled and we heaved the cushions off, revealing the bones of the bed beneath. Once I had spent all day in it, 
home sick from school, watching Garfield and Snoopy cartoons on our top-loading video player. Under the cushions were three chocolate bars, orange with blue writing, fudge written on one side. The thrill of the chase over, we settled down to enjoy our weekly treat. The best way to make it last was to suck all the chocolate off first, leaving a pointy bit of fudge at the end. Sitting on the swirly carpet, we compared the size and efficiency of eating method. How long they lasted depended on whose fist they were in. Mine would be gone within a few minutes, my promises to savor it disappearing under its sticky deliciousness. My sister would eat half, making it last for a good 30 minutes. The rest would be stashed away for later in the week. At Easter, it was the same. I'd devour all the eggs within a day or two, mouth heavy with chocolate. Weeks later, she'd still have carefully wrapped segments to portion out when she wanted them. How my young self railed at the unfairness, while never learning the skill of delayed gratification. Each week was bookended by the Sunday surprise. Once it was done, we might be collared into a dog walk or resume our sprawling games upstairs that involved every Playmobil, Cindy, and animal toy we owned, houses marked out with felt-tip pens, the red train track linking it all together. Eventually, we tired of them and invoked a natural disaster. Can we stop there? Yeah, I love that idea of the Sunday surprise. Yeah, I wish I'd thought of it years ago. But also, I really recognize the difference in eating styles. To this day, I'm a saver. I won't eat that just now. I'll save it for later. There's something really pleasurable and knowing. At the top of my wardrobe, there sits three packs of unopened Twizzlers from America. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it would depend what it was. Some things really hard to eat slowly and savor. Like, you know, I don't know if you ever had those snowballs. Mm. that are kind of like marshmallows covered in chocolate with coconut on the outside. I've seen them. I've never tasted them. No. They were one of my granddad's favorites. So when we went to his house, we'd often be given one of those. And basically, once you've cracked the chocolate shell, like you just have to get it in your mouth really quickly. Otherwise, you end up absolutely covered in unbelievably (laughs) sticky marshmallow. Now that we're so far from, or I'm so far from home, when the kids go and bring me back the sweets that I love, and I particularly love them when they're more stale than they are when you open them, I tend to open them and stick them somewhere, knowing that I'll not be able to replace them in the UK. So I'm really eking them out, you know. But what happens is then when I'm clearing out a drawer, I'll find half a bag of Tootsie Rolls or <laughs> a bag of Twizzlers that are really good and stale, which is great. But it's almost like buried treasure all over the house. But I can see some of the things. I can picture this little person with their kind of sticky hand full of chocolate. And what a brave mom to give them chocolate every week. I love that idea of hiding things in almost plain sight or not being sure you're allowed to um, turn out the sofa. I'm not sure that my children would have ever balked at that. They would have just done it. I think I would have been, oh, I don't think I would have pulled the stuff off the sofa without there being some sort of reason behind it, if you know what I mean. I think I wouldn't have just gone in and built a den and moved all the cushions without checking. But I, th- I don't think I would have felt the need to ask knowing that it was a hiding game. Yeah, exactly. You know, my kids are probably the same, except now, of course, they're teenagers, so I find them lounged around all over the place. They wouldn't bother to take the sofa apart, but they certainly would spend the day lounging on various place, in various places without asking permission. But yeah, you're probably right. I think my kids would have done it if it was a hiding game. I would Probably why we didn't do hiding games. You know, the whole house would have been turned upside down. I used to love the little games that the kids would do where they would make a note and leave it somewhere, 
you know, saying, look at the, look in the washing machine. And then in the washing machine, they would put a note saying, look in the, you know, it was almost like a treasure hunt. We had to find each note and in the end there was some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do have the Easter tradition of hiding eggs in the garden, chocolate eggs. So there are those, but not every week. I think it's a, it's a particularly good mother who has this tradition every week. But I wonder if it's out of wanting the children to feel like they have a treat rather than, you know, I think my children probably got treats in some ways right through the week. And I'm not sure it feels like that's happening in this house. We did have a tradition of having chocolate on a Friday. In fact, when my youngest learnt the days of the week, it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, chip day, because that was the day that there was always chips at school dinner. So her brothers came home saying, oh, it was chip day today, chocolate Friday. (laughs) That was her days of the week when she was very little. That's so funny. It was kind of a way just to sort of settle in to the weekend, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I suspect we did that too. By the, by the end of the week, the oldest would get a treat on Friday if he'd you know done what he was meant to do. And I had my youngest yesterday complaining we, don't, we didn't have enough sweets in the house. We weren't having sweets. And I was thinking, hang on a minute, I've gone somewhere wrong in this parenting. It's only Tuesday and you're complaining that we don't have sweets. So it did make me laugh thinking the difference between a first and a fourth child is huge. And I, it's probably, I'm not the best person to say that you could get every first child up of a big family and explain how things had, to explain how things had changed. For sure. But there's lots I recognize. I recognize that searching game where it's colder, 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 warmer, 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 mm-hmm. boiling. I don't know if you ever did that with yeah, your kids when yeah, they were yeah, little. Yeah. So I haven't thought about that for years. Or we used to do that with the 20 question games as well. But lots of, we'd say warmer, you know, if you were getting closer to the idea. So yeah, and it reminds me of all those outdoor games and that whole thing of like getting your siblings together and playing like some really weird, intricate game that involved all your toys and yeah. running them through the bedrooms and into the halls and stuff. And I, now as a parent, I think, gosh, you know, no wonder my parents would have been delighted, you know, at that couple of hours of peace for us to go off and do whatever it was we were doing, how the world has changed. So I also recognize there being one room in the house that was warm, you know, and wanting to be in it because, um, you know, there wasn't, we didn't do hot water bottles as much, but my parents just put on lots of blankets and turned the heat off. So, you know, it, at night, for sure, there was no heating on. So um, I really recognize that waking up and not wanting to get out of bed and, and changing in my bed for school, leaving my school uniform beside my bed so I could get dressed in my bed where it was warm and not have to face stripping off outside. So I definitely recognize some of that feeling. Maybe not ice on the inside of the windows, but close, I would say. Yeah, and we, we had an open fire in our living room, which would be set, but it was very much probably on a Sunday and, you know, as a sort of treat, it wasn't every week for sure. Um, but I used to love that warm when that when that room was nice and warm. And it did. It felt like a nice weekend thing in our house too. Um, yeah, my dad was the one who always built fires and he would build them huge, again, an open fire. And we would all end up kind of doing something in that room and effectively falling asleep because it was so warm and we just weren't used to it. So. Shall we read on and see what happens to this um, yeah. this little person? I think it's a little person. We haven't even discussed how old the person is, but in my head, it's a pretty little person. Yeah, I think the joy in the finding of the bar of fudge <laughs> gives it away. And the fact they're still playing with Cindy's and Playmobil. Yeah. So I, I'm with you. It is a little person. In later years, we had our own pocket money and could choose from the baffling displays of jars, tubs and packets. I filled my paper bag carefully. The flying saucers and jazzies were big, but didn't last long and cost 2p. 
while gummy bears were two for a penny and could be chewed all the way home. Somehow it didn't seem as fun. It was too easy. There was no sense of accomplishment in a scrunched square of white paper to go in the bin when I got home. Many years later, I went to university thanks to a bursary and made rash, rebellious decisions about food. I would eat my toast as a whole slice, biting off the four corners to save the buttery, marmitey bit in the middle until last. Back home, it was always cut into sensible rectangles and eaten on a plate. One evening, I went to the cinema and spent £6.35 on a giant tub of pick and mix for dinner and felt insufferably sick as the credits rolled. Something was lacking. There wasn't the sense of anticipation, of shared joy. Now I think my sisters drew the game out for me, the youngest, that it wasn't so hard to find three chocolate bars in a small living room. I think how clever it was of my mother to disguise her fears about our teeth into a weekly game, how she made 30p count for so much with three children. There are many other traditions that grew around food in our family. The hunt for Easter eggs was done with rhyming clues. Each Christmas breakfast was half a grapefruit with a glassy cherry on top, followed by ham and eggs. Each birthday was marked with elaborately shaped cakes. I read somewhere that even knocking on a table before eating carrots can lend a sense of ritual to eating. That human bonds are made and strengthened through the sharing and consumption of food. Our mother, her first child arriving at the age of 19, carved these moments into our lives to create the shape of our family. Later, Once my dad left and we moved hundreds of miles away, we clung to those customs as if the threads of our connection depended on them. We still do. On Sundays, I remember the shiver of excitement as we waited upstairs while she did the hiding, the ache in my stomach at the silly words we made up while we were waiting, the moment when we would stand in the doorway together. I remember the sweetness of it all. Okay, before we get into discussing this, what is a jazzy? It's those little white chocolate buttons with this hundreds and thousands on Uh, top. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I know what you mean. It's not something I'd come across, so I was wondering. And it's always really yucky white chocolate. (laughs) You know know that white chocolate that tastes vaguely of sick? (laughs) You've ruined it. I know. I'm not a fan of the jazzy, as you can probably tell. Would not be my suite of choice. Well, especially not for 2P when you can have four gummy bears in its place, especially if you get the four gummy bears sat out for a while and are properly good and stale. I was just thinking about that, you know, that part of the story too, that she talks about how so many memories are linked to food. And and, and then I, I love the, the bit at the end of the story because that is true. And part of me, you know, because I love food, because I know you love food too. That's a, that's a really reassuring feeling because I know that my children associate, you know, like we talked about last month, Thanksgiving with pumpkin pies and even the gross lime jelly or whatever it is, that's part of that tradition. Easter will have its own traditions, less so I would say for us, but um, mostly it's music at Easter. But, you know, every season and every birthday in our house starts with pancakes and bacon always. Um, you know, so there are traditions like that. And not just any old bacon. <laughs> 
billionaire's bacon, which is something I had to just explain to the children because billionaire's bacon is just, it's, you know, one of my children asked me this week about why it's called billionaire's bacon. And that, um, it's bacon that's basically smoked bacon that's pressed into an awful lot of brown sugar so that when you cook it, it caramelizes. So it's sweet and salty all at once, smoky all at once. But um, as my oldest daughter was making it this week, she said, why is it called billionaire's bacon? It's not very expensive to make. And I said, oh, no, no, it's because <laughs> you're so rich that you can afford the cardiac treatment that's going to be required <laughs> when you eat too much of it. And she made some comment about how that's not true in the UK and we have the NHS and things, which made me laugh. But so always pancakes and billionaire's bacon. And as the kids got bigger, we included chocolate chips and then we included Nutella and then we included, you know, they, they got more and more fancy until some point I said, Right, back to basics. Pancakes and billionaire's bacon for breakfast. But what I was thinking is you and your family and my family, I know have all these traditions around food and it's almost, you know, we know it's Christmas day because certain things are happening. I know in your house too. But what made me think of, think twice about that is that last sentence in the story, that it's not so much the eating of the thing itself, but the, the act act of doing it or the act of waiting or the act of, you know, smelling that or knowing, having it presented, I think is as, is as important as the food actually is, is kind of ancillary. Do you know what I mean? Like it matters that it's pancakes and bacon, but actually what matters is that the kids wake up and know they're getting pancakes and bacon and coming downstairs and having it presented to them. All of that ritual is as important as what they're actually eating. Yeah, for sure. For sure, and it and it's the it's the marking of the years, and it's a different way of ways of marking the passing of time and the changing of the seasons and and things changing and them growing up and but the, but knowing that there is a certainty and a stability amongst the change. Yeah, exactly. It's not for me, and it's maybe the first time I've ever realized that. For me, it's not so much, and I think for my kids too, although they might not see it that way, it's not so much whatever it is that's getting presented on the plate, but, or, you know, at the meal, but the fact that they know what it is and it is the same thing every time triggers that, ah, that's, this is where we are. It's almost like a marker on a roadmap, you know, when you, or a corner, a street corner, when you see something, you think, ah, I know where I am. You know, I feel like that, that's what the food does for us. Doing the same thing every year does kind of that, that marking job where we know where we are in a season rather than it being so important that we eat the exact same thing at certain times every year. So somehow it feels like it flips the importance, although we all, I always put the importance on the food. I feel like it's just a kind of way marker in some way. And I think that's the true purpose of a ritual, isn't it? Of any form, whether it's food related or, or other rituals, is that sort of familiarity, knowing what's coming next and marking the passing of time or the ceremony or a staging post. Yeah, exactly. And almost the kind of knowing what that is and having it being the same thing over and over frees you up to actually experience the thing rather than concentrating on what, you know, what new dish is in front of you. And I think it gives you confidence to go out and do things that are not familiar and try new things in the gaps between the familiarity because you've got those anchoring points to come back to. And it's funny how we treat, we create them for ourselves, right? Because I know you'll have included lots of your family traditions, but have your own too. And one thing I think of, and we'll get there, I'm sure, in podcasts is Noru's, and we have in the past. You know, my family didn't really celebrate Noru's which is the Persian New Year on the spring, e spring equinox, but I have always celebrated it with the children. And so for them, that's really, you know, a thing we've got to do it. It's Noru's. 
which makes me, when I ring my parents, it makes them laugh because they never did it. Um, so it's not necessarily the passing down, but it's that, that, that decision-making around what is it that I want to be important for my own self first and then my children. So, you know, I used to always think of rituals as connected to culture or family or, you know, that you had to have them from your family. But the truth is you can, you can make them up yourself, which, is really, which has been really joyful for our family. And I can think of many times that you do that for yours too. Shall we read um, Teresa's poem and see how it connects maybe or doesn't yeah. connect with the story? Um, it's from her collection, Saddle, which is published by Vagabond Voices. And it's the first poem in the collection called 22. 22. The age my mother and I emigrated to cities we had never been, years apart. But some things were the same. Same church-like shuffle down the jetway, same keyhole window seeping light, same long-haul flight leaving us sand-tongued, the chilled air a punch in the face when she landed midwinter. Surrounded by concrete towers, she dropped her first payslip down a gutter, the snow landing like large moths. And me, from Vancouver to Glasgow, 35, Kelvin Hall Gate, a flat so damp I slept in a wool hat for months and got lost coming back from a place I'd been twice. So in a pub's doorway, I spread out my map, leaf thin. Once I heard her say, 22 is the age I left Manila, left the only patch of land she knew to wonder as I did on that cold step. Should I go back, or have I begun again? So for me, I guess that's about what we were just talking about, that creation of ritual. You know, that idea that you have to start and make your own thing. And yet somehow, even when you do that, you tend to be replicating what came before. And the idea that no matter where you are, you will find things that are familiar. Mm. Yeah, like, and, and the word same is used in the poem, that same thing, that same thing, and that idea that even though you might be half a world away, in both her case and her mother's case, things feel the same, or we did things in parallel. You know, we both moved at 22, we both got lost, we both found the cold yeah. difficult. You know, that idea of things coming round over and over again in some way. I love that idea of sleeping in a wool hat, you know, that feeling of cold and unfamiliarity. And yet in the story, we've got sleeping with hot water bottles and trying to knowing the cold and still working on keeping it out. And this poem, it's strange because Teresa's come from Canada and so we'll know cold, but maybe not cold indoors in the way that we experience in Britain, I think. Yeah, and that dampness as well, I think, is different that she talks about. Yeah, that idea of beginning again as well, you know, that idea of um, making a decision about beginning again or going back as a young person or as a young mother um, is really interesting too. And, you know, I know in the story we've got a young mother who's making decisions, who's actively making those kind of, I am staying, I am, you know, even though it sounds like in the story they've moved you know, hundreds of miles, they clung to those things as familiar and as a way of feeling like they've held themselves together in some way. 
And I, I know for a fact that that's a way of finding your home in a place is, is not forgetting everything that you've come from, you know, kind of bringing some of that with you and the kind of confidence that it, that is required to do that rather than to say, I'm in a new, I'm in a new place. I can do everything entirely new. That, that idea of honoring where you've come from being important and allowing you to strike out and establish yourself in a new place. Like yeah. it feels dishonorable, disloyal to just shut down everything that's gone before and as you say start everything anew afresh um but i guess it's it's not always easy to navigate what you want to bring with you and what you can bring with you yeah and 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 also not knowing what's going to be accepted i think um in a new place is a really big question you know whether you know the instinct to fit in and the instinct to blend is stronger than your instinct to need to be or to as you say honor where you've come from and that's a big question I think we'll not tackle here today I wouldn't imagine but you know that idea that like you don't want to stick out you don't want to um, be different so you take on the customs and traditions of the people around you I think it's for those who move whether that's within geographically or within cultures or even with within socioeconomic spheres that's a really big question of how much of that you can bring with you how much you choose to bring with you and the barriers that presents but i also love the way this poem looks back and wonders if her mother wondered about going back um about starting again and you know i think that the, the story itself is a lot about that looking back and as an as a grown person i don't know if adult is the right sense of that narrator, but as a grown person looking back and recognizing literally what it cost her mother to do that ritual every week, but also what it would have cost her mother to be a 19-year-old mom herself and to move hundreds of miles away and to have to eke out all the pennies. So I, I think there is something about growing up and looking back and seeing the choices or the at least the thresholds that your parents individually or together stood at and made decisions at which you certainly I certainly never recognized as a child no and I don't think you would necessarily want your children to be in a place as children that they're recognizing those difficult decisions because I think we spend so much time as parents trying to ease our children's way through the world yeah and I sometimes wonder if that's always to their credit um you know, because I think children at times are wiser than they seem, you know, so looking back in my own history, for example, I, you know, as children, we knew that there was a lot going on when we had to flee Iran and, you know, there was an awful lot happening, but not very much explained. Um, and I don't know how you would explain that to a young child in a way that was child friendly, if I'm honest, but the reality is there's so much happening with the adults around you that they're, they're just trying to survive and keep you safe, as you say, ease a child's way through. But I, you know, I query that idea of easing a child through. I mean, maybe when it's, you know, that you're struggling with money, that's a different story because you don't want your children to worry about that. But the truth is, you know, as they get towards teenagerhood, it's good for them to know that there's not always pennies for the extra things that they want to do that aren't absolutely required. So that's not a bad lesson when you're 17 or 19 or even 15. 
But at three or seven or nine, probably they don't need to know that. So I think it shifts as well. And then as you say, you know, when we're, well, I'm in my fifties, you know, I kind of now look back at my parents with a completely different eye, you know, and can absolutely see the decision points in a way that I never did, even as a young woman, because I just wasn't as curious, to be honest. I was busy making, standing at my own decision points, I guess. But I, I love the way that both of the poem and the story reflect on those in, in terms of what it would have cost both mothers to do whatever it was that they were doing, making those shifts, saving those pennies, raising family. I love that idea of getting lost coming back from a place you've been to twice. You know, I can absolutely see that. I can be, I can be going to a place on a number of occasions and still not be entirely certain of how to get there or how to get back from it. Yeah, especially when you're walking. I mean, I think these days, because we've got technology that shouts at us about where to go, we're so bad at looking for signs, you know, whereas 10 years ago, even I knew my way around, I, you know, and if, I, if you told me how to get somewhere, I would definitely be able to get back because I would be paying attention. But even this week, I went to a part of the city to pick up a child that I don't normally go to. And I just thought, okay, I'll get the sat nav to get me there, but I'm going to try and pay attention to the road markings, you know, that there's a golf club there, or there's a sign there that looks a little bit different so that I can try and make my own way home because it annoys me to forever have to listen to a something telling me where to go. But I do think we're less good at recognizing those markings. And I think there is something huge about moving halfway around the world and, and finding yourself lost. Because, you know, there's so much else happening that you can very easily find yourself lost on a square block, which is, which is unusual, I'd say. I think there's lots of skills like that, that technology have, have made us less honed and less sharp with. Things like remembering phone numbers as a child, you know, I knew my granny's number and your next door neighbor's number and you, my own home number. And now in a way that I, I know my own mobile number, but it's probably the only number that I can recite. Maybe my dad's and even things like parking, you know, parking the car. My car has this snazzy thing that it will park for you. And sometimes I just turn it off to make sure that I've not forgotten how to parallel park. Yeah. Well, I have resisted those cars that do the beep beeping when you're too close to another one because I just think, oh, for goodness sake, I've got to learn my, you know, I just don't want to lose that judgment of the geography of this, the, the things I'm in, as it were. But it'll be interesting to see what this generation is like that comes up and doesn't have to remember how to bake anything or do anything because they can always just look it up. I guess, I don't know, it'll be really interesting to see the, you know, how things change in the next 20 years um, and how that shifts as well. That's been brilliant um, and interesting to talk about the ways our lives are set around rituals and create rituals and what the rituals, I'd never thought about that, but what they free us up to think about as well in a different sort of way than you might have expected. Huge thanks to Teresa and to Sarah for those two wonderful pieces. And we'll be back again with you next month, which will be, in fact, next year. Um, so thank you so much for having us in your ears again. And um, we look forward to chatting on another podcast soon. <laughs>